The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we come now to your word, we ask for your Holy Spirit to speak to us. Um, we as Christians, we, your people, we have this high kind of audacious trust that you are a talkative God that you're a good communicator, that you communicate to us not only what we expect to hear from you, but very often what we completely do not expect to hear from you, but what we need to hear from you. And so, Father, as we come now to your word, we ask you to speak, and we ask you to dig out our ears, to open our ears, to make our hearts receptive. Um, we're not naturally receptive to you, so make us so. and change us from the inside out. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, everybody, um, it's great to see you, to kind of see you a little bit. Um, will you please uh, turn over to Psalm 27? So you can look at that in your service sheet. I think it's on page eight. Um, or you can open up uh, the Bible. Um, Psalms are always pretty much in the middle. Um, and uh, turn up to Psalm 27. Um, we're going to keep on talking about courage. We've been talking about courage for the last few weeks for obvious reasons. I don't need to tell you why, um, because the, the world's crazy. Uh, 
And, and we need courage. Where does courage come from? Now, we're looking at Psalm 27 today because it gives us another perspective on where Christian courage comes from. And Psalm 27 is a very um, personal psalm for me. Um, I have prayed this psalm, I mean, countless times. And part of the reason I prayed this psalm countless times is that um, I do not remember a time in my life, even from childhood, when uh, fear and anxiety was not a regular experience for me. And somewhere during high school, uh, I met Psalm 27. And I say I met Psalm 27 because, like I said, it feels like a friend. It has been with me um, week in and week out for years and years and years. And I began to pray Psalm 27 as a way to battle my fears and my anxiety. Somebody told me that it was good for that. I tried it and I found it remarkable. I found it, it, it was remarkably helpful to me. And it began to uh, uh, show me what I believe to be the engine room for true Christian courage. However, the more I've gotten to know Psalm 27, the more I see that that, that aspect of courage, that, that um, uh, resilience in dealing with um, fear and anxiety, um, that's real, but it's really kind of a side benefit in Psalm 27. I came to Psalm 27 wanting relief from my fears, but Psalm 27 had a better gift to give me. And the better gift that Psalm 27 wanted to give me is that Psalm 27 is designed to bring us from a place of fear right into the presence of God. And there is no greater gift than the presence of God. Now, um, I was trying to think about how to illustrate this. Um, and, and I was thinking about faces. You know how we're all, we're not supposed to touch our face, right? Don't touch your face. Everybody knows that? Fantastic. And not only are we not supposed to touch our face, we're not supposed to touch other people's face. We're especially not to, supposed to touch other people's face. Now, usually touching other people's faces is weird. However, in this season, where touching our own face is scary and touching other people's face is not only weird, but scary. Psalm 27 sort of turns that around and says, in the middle of this terribly uncertain time, in, this, in the midst of this time where fear is everywhere, Psalm 27 says, I want you to look at the face of God. I want you, and I want to show you, says Psalm 27, how to touch the face of God. Because according to Psalm 27, when you see God's face or when you get up close with God's face, you will know an intimacy that is the very purpose of your life, and it is also the only source of security. And the closer we get to the face of God, the more you'll find courage coming alongside. It's a side benefit. Psalm 27 wants to aim us, not, not first at courage, but first at intimacy with God. And then we'll find that courage comes along with it. All right. That's kind of what I want to show you. Let's come into the psalm and look at it more specifically. Take a look at the psalm. And just like every psalm, you need to imaginatively enter the psalm. So you got to picture the scene. Look at verse 2. This is David writing, uh, and he's, he's describing what's happening around him. So verse two, he says this, um, when evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, follow the imagery, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall, 
Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet my heart will be confident. Now, stop there. Imagine the scene that David's painting. He's painting a really bad scenario. Uh, I, I think the word is he's catastrophizing. He's imagining the absolute worst case scenario. Verse two, David says, okay, let's imagine that I am surrounded by cannibals who want to eat me. Like that counts for bad, right? Or then verse three, he says, actually, let's imagine that it's not just, let's imagine that there's an army surrounding the city. But the army doesn't just want to conquer the city. The army is, it doesn't really care about conquering the city. It just wants to kill me. Imagine that. Now, if you think about that for a few minutes, I, hopefully we'll be able to agree that that's like a, that is a bad scenario. That's a bad circumstance, okay? However, take a look at your own heart as you imagine that. Does, here's my question. Does David's scenario, his worst case scenario, does it, does it touch your fears? Like, do you find your heart going, oh, yes, that's the thing I'm worried about? Now, my guess is that probably the answer is no. Um, my, my guess is that there's a little bit of a danger here that we hear David's worst case scenario, and it just sounds so extreme, it sounds unrealistic, and in that way, it just kind of deflects off our hearts. David's worst case scenario probably is not our fears. Now, if you're in northern Syria right now, David's, fear, David's worst case scenario is your reality. But that's not where we're at. My guess is that for most of us, our worst case scenario is something like, and see if you can identify with this, something like uh, financial ruin or uh, losing a loved one or being sick or finding, finding ourselves alone forever. Does that sound right? Something like that? My guess is that those are the kinds of things that make us, on this call, our guts seize up at 4 a.m. Now, whatever your worst case scenario is, keep that in mind and go back to this psalm. Because you gotta remember who's praying this prayer. David is praying this prayer. And everything that David describes in verses two and three happened at some point in David's life. And it actually, all those things happened multiple times. He's not doing hyperbole. This is not imaginary. Um, this is not tongue in cheek. David, David was hunted like an animal multiple times over the course of his life. You are reading the words in Psalm 27 of a man who knows teeth grinding fear. So now, in the midst of David's worst case scenario, which is really, really bad, what is it that he prays for? What's the one thing he asks of God? Actually, before we do that, think about yourself. What's, if you, in your worst case scenario, what's the one thing you would ask of God? If you could only pray one prayer, in your worst case scenario, what's the one thing you would ask God to do? Got it in your mind? Okay. Keep that in your mind, whatever you would pray for in the worst case scenario, if it was happening. And now compare your prayer to David's prayer. Look at verse four. Verse four says this. Here, here's David's one prayer. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house all the days of my life and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Okay. Is that what you would pray for? 
And of, of course it's not the thing you would pray for. And if it is the thing you, you would pray for, then um, email me because you're going to preach next week, okay? Um, doesn't that, doesn't verse four seem crazy? David is more concerned about being in God's temple than he is about his immediate safety. And the question that has perplexed and captivated my heart for years is the question, why in the world would David pray this prayer in the midst of experiencing his worst fears? And this is where we need to slow down, Emmanuel, because this is so important, I can't even describe how important this is. Look at verse four, and I wanna point out two ideas. David talks about the temple. David talks about beauty. Let's take those in turn. First, the temple of the Lord. What's a temple? A temple is a building designed to bridge distance and facilitate relationship between God and humanity. Um, so we're all up, all of us right now are on a Zoom call, right? We're all getting really used to Zoom calls. What is Zoom for? Zoom is a platform designed to bridge distance and facilitate relationship between people who are in lockdown. And we're really grateful for it, right? That's kind of what a temple is supposed to do. And if you look through the Bible, all through the Bible, there's this desire in God. God's driving desire is to meet with his people in the temple. This doesn't get enough play in Christian circles. So even if you spend a lot of time with the Bible, you might not have heard about this. Um, but if you've been with Emmanuel for a few months, uh, we've been going through the book of Exodus. You remember the story of Exodus? Uh, Israel is enslaved in Egypt for a long time. And then God breaks into the story, liberates Israel from their slavery. Now, here's the question. Why does God liberate Israel from their slavery? Well, the answer is many, many reasons. But one of the biggest is that God wanted to bring his people out of slavery into a new land. And there he wanted his people to build a temple. At first they called it a tabernacle. It's basically the same thing. He wanted his people to build a temple where God and God's people could meet together. The culminating moment of the book of Exodus is not so much when Israel escapes slavery. That's the first act. The culminating moment in the book of Exodus is when God's presence enters the temple so that God and Israel begin to experience intimacy with one another. That is God's driving goal in the Exodus and all through the Bible. God wants to bridge the distance between God and his people so that they can live in intimacy with him. Now keep that in your mind and go back to verse four. Why is it so important and so significant that David in the midst of his crisis is saying one thing I want is to meet God in his temple. Why? Why is that important? Why is it significant? Here's why. It means that David's top desire in his life is now synchronized with God's top desire. Remember, God wants to meet his people in the temple. And now in the midst of this crisis, David has been brought to a place where he wants to meet God as well. God's desires, God's will, and David's will, David's desires are now together. And this is huge because it means that as God is trying to draw David to himself, David is now finally responding with a heart that says, yes, Lord, I consent. 
take me to yourself. I want you more than I want anything, even my comfort. Now let me try to say basically the same thing, but in an entirely different way. Um, whether you've been around church for a long time or not at all, uh, you know that Christians talk about sin, right? The Bible talks about sin. What is sin? Sin is more than just rule breaking. It includes it, but it's more than it. Sin is the opposite of what David is praying in verse four. In other words, sin is when we decide um, that there are better things than God, and we decide, hey, listen, I don't need God. I'm satisfied living at distance from God. I don't need to live in intimacy with him. I'm fine. I want autonomy. I'm going to look after myself. I'm going to call the shots. And we live at distance from God, and we're happy with it. In other words, sin is rejecting God, preferring something over and against God, and therefore betraying our relationship with God. But the opposite of sin is what the Bible calls holiness. And holiness begins when we see the wreckage of our autonomy. Holiness begins when we see that living from distance from God is a tragedy and a disaster. When living at distance from God becomes our deepest worst case scenario. We see that living at distance from God violates the very purpose of our existence. And therefore, there is nothing that could be a bigger tragedy than living at distance from God. And we begin to see that living at distance from God leads to infinite and eternal despair. Now, that's where holiness begins, but it's not where holiness ends. Holiness really takes root when you, un you, you, you see the wreckage of our autonomy and living at distance from God. But then you look at the temple. You look at the temple, the place where God and God's people can meet, and you see that the, that the door of the temple is open, that the door of the temple is still open, and you end up running for that door like an asylum seeker seeks an embassy. You run for the door of the temple saying, don't close that door. Don't close that. Hold that door. One thing I desire as you run for the temple. One thing I seek after as you lean for the door. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. And as you're running for the door, you hear a voice, the voice of God coming from the open door of the temple, screaming, yelling out at you, come, come, my child. I have been waiting for you. One thing I I have desired for you, my child. One thing I seek after for you, my child, is that you may come into my presence forever. Come into the temple and find yourself at home. Is that what you thought holiness was? And can you see why David desires the temple? But there's more. Look back at verse four. Do you see on the one hand, it talks about the temple. On the other hand, it talks about the beauty of the Lord. What's the beauty of the Lord about? Well, we get a clue in verse eight. In verse eight, David talks about the face of God. And those two things go together, beauty and face. Um, see if you can identify with this. Uh, I, I can't think of anything more beautiful than the face of someone who loves me very much. I love looking at the face of people who love me very much. Don't you? Can you think of anything more beautiful than looking at the face of someone who loves you very much? When you are an infinite, infant, 
That was the first thing you were looking for. And nothing really has changed. But now just imagine that you were looking into the face, not only of somebody who loved you, but somebody who is love and is infinite love. You're looking into the face of somebody who is love and infinite love combined with infinite justice, combined with infinite power. Now, no, nobody can really imagine what that face would look like, but nevertheless, wouldn't you find that face compelling if you could look at that face? Well, that's the beauty that David wants to see in the temple. The beauty inside the temple is the beauty of God's own face. But then now here's, here's the catch. It's, it's not really a catch, but it kind of sounds like a catch for a few minutes. The catch or the apparent catch is <laughs> only the vulnerable and only the weak and only the wounded and only the needy ever really get to enter God's temple and see his face. Now, why do I say that? Well, here's why. Listen, as long as I'm comfortable, like as long as I find life manageable and as long as I'm, you know, living the American dream and everything's fantastic, I'm going to be just fine living at distance from God. In fact, the Bible says that all of our hearts are oriented to prefer autonomy over against intimacy with God. We like to make peace with our sin. And therefore, if I can find any way to flatter myself that I'm okay without God, I'm going to take that chance. I'm going to go for it. And as long as I live a comfortable life and I'm self-satisfied, I'll never run to the temple and I'll never see God's face. And that begins to explain why in Psalm 27, David's vulnerability and David's crisis, it is not the sign of God's curse. It's the context of God's blessing. And that explains why David can be so courageous because despite the fact that he's facing a Worst case scenario, later on he says, my mother and my father have forsaken me. I'm surrounded by enemies for real. Nevertheless, in the midst of his worst case scenario, he can know that God somehow is going to use all of this vulnerability to draw him nearer to God. And that's David's highest desire. He wants to be nearer to the Lord. And the nearer he gets to the Lord and the more of the Lord's beauty that he sees, the more he can begin to trust that the Lord is somehow going to show himself faithful despite the worst case scenario. Can you see how the power of David's fear is being sucked out of his experience as he looks at the beauty of God? Now, I can imagine somebody pushing back and saying, hang on, Jim, wait, this is weird. Are you telling me that God somehow is going to use our experience of vulnerability or crisis, maybe even suffering, to draw us nearer to himself? Uh, why would I trust a God like that? That sounds horrible. And if that's what you're thinking, it's a, it's a good objection. Let me add something else. I just said that on the one hand, you have to experience vulnerability in order to really see God. But there's something else that's true. In order to really see God, you have to see God experience your vulnerability. And that means we have to talk about Jesus. Here, here's why. Jesus who comes hundreds of years later after David, Jesus is God's face. If you look at Jesus, you'll see who God really is. He's fully God and fully human at the same time. And if you think about Jesus for a minute, 
Um, what was Jesus's mission? What, what was it that Jesus was trying to achieve? Jesus's mission was exactly the same as the temple's mission. Uh, Jesus came to bridge distance and achieve intimacy between us and God. He, Jesus came to draw us into God's presence. That was his driving aim. Jesus came to show us God's face. And that was his mission. Think about how he accomplished it, though. He accomplished it by becoming vulnerable. I mean, you guys, Christianity's big audacious claim is that when God actually showed up in this world, he didn't stay far off from our vulnerability. He didn't stay far off from our worst case scenario. He didn't look at it from afar. He didn't go on a tour. He came right into it and tasted it. He was nearly killed as a baby. He was raised as a child, as a refugee. His family at various points thought he was crazy. In our gospel reading, he broke down and he cried at the funeral of his friend. Jesus was vulnerable his whole life. And he experienced all of our worst case scenarios. And not only did he experience our worst case scenarios, he experienced David's worst case scenario. Because a whole army gathered around grabbed him and threw him up on a cross and pinned him there until he died. Look at the face of God in Jesus Christ because he knows all about your vulnerability and he has tasted the bitterness more deeply than any of us have. And he suffered all of that so that he could become our temple so that he could bridge the distance between us and God and purchase intimacy so that sinners, people like me who prefer my own autonomy could be brought into the presence of God. That's why he did it. Jesus came to us in the midst of our vulnerability. And if he did that, then we can trust him to use our vulnerability, redeem it and use it to draw us nearer to him. But then just don't stop there, keep going. Because remember that Jesus' story does not end in vulnerability. Jesus' story ends in resurrection. And if you belong to Jesus Christ, so does yours. And keep that in your mind and go back to David in verse 4. Because in verse 4, he sees the beauty of the Lord. He gets just a little glimpse. He doesn't see all that he could have seen when he, if, if he were to see Jesus. But he saw enough of, enough of God's beauty that as he looks at God, he realizes that his story is not going to be defined finally by his worst case scenario. His story, as he looks at the beauty of God, he realizes that his story is going to be defined by the Lord's faithfulness and love. And that's why he bursts out with verse five. Look back at verse five. Verse five says, for he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon, his ro upon a rock. David's fear has been drawn out and transformed into trust. Doesn't mean the circumstances are better yet, but he's trusting. It's as if David says, I don't know for sure how God's going to pull it off, but if I know that if I belong to a God who is as beautiful as the God that it is that I see in the temple, then I can see that he's more loving and more powerful and more faithful than I can imagine. And therefore I can trust that somehow he's going to make this right. So I trust him. Now bring that to you and me. If you belong, Emmanuel, come on. If you belong to Jesus, then look at his face. Look at him on the cross 
and look at his resurrection and know that that is your story. That's your story. Jesus is bringing you into his story. Look at him and then, having looked at him, then look back at your fears. Look at your worst case scenario right in the eyes and then you can prophesy over your own life, verse six. Verse six is a prophecy over your life if you belong to Jesus Christ. It says, he says, and now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. That's going to be the story of your life if you belong to Jesus. That's your future. Look at him. Look at him more than you look at your fears, and you'll see that it's true. And if you don't belong to Jesus and you're not sure that you belong to Jesus, then this can be your story. This can be your future. Friends, Jesus is the only temple that works. He bridges the distance between us and God. He purchased intimacy and reconciliation between you and God. So surrender your autonomy. Surrender your independence. Surrender all control of your life. It is a burden. It is a curse. And your anxiety that wakes you up in the middle of the night and grips your heart, your anxiety is a sign that your autonomy isn't working. And then in tears, broken, bring your vulnerability and run to the temple's open door, which means run to Jesus. All right, there's a lot more in this psalm, but let me end with three ways to respond to all this in times of uncertainty. The first, seek God's face more than your fears. Secondly, seek your growth more than your comfort. Thirdly, seek God's rescue by waiting for him. First, seek God's face more than your fears. Verse eight, um, whatever else God may be doing right now in your life and in the life of everything, God is at least doing this. God is orchestrating our lives so that relying upon ourselves becomes intolerable and so that we run to him for intimacy. And so Emmanuel, let's just give up now and seek the face of God. And what I mean is this, think about whatever frightens you. Like the thing that wakes you up at four in the morning and you just find yourself just almost wetting yourself with fear in the middle of the night. You know that? Okay. When you're there, battle your fears by worshiping Jesus. So get up, open up Psalm 27, go to verse four and say, I'm not really here yet, but nevertheless, God, I aspire that one thing I ask of you, this will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in your temple. Help me to see Jesus's beauty despite my fears. And as you look at Jesus and as you worship him, the Lord will be the Lord over your fears. Seek the Lord's face more than your fears. Number two, seek your growth, not just your comfort. Verse 11, uh, verse 11 says, 
Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on the level path because of my enemies. Now, God wants us all to grow up. And this is a special season for uh, pushing us towards maturity. So don't waste your time. In all the ways that we can waste our time, get busy learning from the Lord. And let your, let your uncertainty drive you towards him. Learn from him. Focus on your growth and not just on your comfort. And then lastly, thirdly, seek the Lord's rescue by waiting for him in prayer. Uh, if you notice at the end of the psalm, uh, it's not all better yet for David, right? He's still vulnerable. Uh, in fact, if you read through the prayer, his prayers get more urgent as the prayer, as the psalm goes on. It starts super, super confident. It ends with a little bit of a, a, a heightened sense of vulnerability. Remember, the vulnerability is not the enemy here. And the psalm ends in verse 13 with, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, which means it's not all wrapped up for him but he's looking at the beauty of God. He's waiting for God's rescue. He's bringing all the problems. He's bringing, you know, for us, he's bringing money and health and our loved ones. He's bringing, he's bringing all of that before the Lord and saying, Lord, show how your beauty connects with these problems. Show me your goodness. I believe I'm going to see it in the land of the living. Show me. And then he waits. And waiting, Emmanuel, feels weak, but don't believe it for a minute. When you're waiting upon the Lord, that is the, that is the content of true Christian courage. So wait for the Lord. And we will be able to say, verse 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.